This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 14. We're looking this evening at verses 1 through 22. Rather than read the text in its entirety for the sake of time, what we'll do is just uh, read it as we take up each section and work our way through chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now as we study your word that you would uh, open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us tonight. Father, we thank you for the book of Jeremiah, your servant Jeremiah, and for these words that have been preserved by your spirit for us and for our benefit and uh, for your grace to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, I came across one of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that really caught my attention uh, so that I was thinking about it for some time after that. It's Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Not against himself, but against the Lord. You see, people act in ways that bring trouble on themselves, and then they turn around and blame God for it. Some examples. Imagine a drunk driver. He's intoxicated and driving, and he hits and kills someone. And in his guilt and his shame, he says, God, why did you let this happen? Or imagine an adulterer whose marriage fails, and then he says, God, why did you let this happen? Or imagine someone who has spent himself to the edge in terms of debt, and finally enters bankruptcy and says, why did you let this happen, God? Imagine a nation. A nation that had known the ways of the Lord, and yet time and again had turned from those ways, the ways of the Lord, to go in its own way, in its own sinful way. And God practically begs that nation to return to him, and yet they refuse. And God is patient, and he pleads with them. And he sends, as we saw this morning, servant after servant to them, and yet they refuse. And finally, the judgment of God comes. And they say, why are you letting this happen, God? That, of course, is exactly where we are with Jeremiah, and and distinctly so in this chapter that's before us. Now, the fact is, the suffering is no less real for its being our own fault. Suffering was no less real for Judah, for Jerusalem, for its being their own fault. Then, of course, Jeremiah is one of them. He suffers with them. He experiences what they're experiencing. And so Jeremiah intercedes for Judah. He prays for Jerusalem. What else can he do? He pleads with God for his mercy. And 
here in this passage, he, he draws our attention to two problems in particular that we see. And the first one has to do with drought. And this was really taken up in the first 12 verses. The, the symptom of that is the empty cisterns. Now, this is, this is one we can identify with, uh, having just recently come out of uh, a drought. And yet, how many of us really suffered? The cistern was getting low, but it's filling back up out at Lake Lanier. Uh, it's only about six feet now below where it would normally be this time of year. It's good to see. But how, how many of us really suffered because of the drought? Well, we had water restrictions. Maybe the flowers got a little dry, the grass a little dry, perhaps the car a little dirtier than usual, whatever it might be. But how many of us really suffered because of the drought? And yet we've experienced that day after day, week after week of nice, sunny blue skies with no rain. Well, let's look at their experience, something very different. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Now, the nobles can send their servants. They can command them all they want, but they can't command there to be water. And if it's not raining, then the cisterns eventually run out of water. And unless there's rain, there's no water. And if there's no water, there's nothing to drink. There's nothing to take care of their animals with. Uh, there's nothing that's... Uh, enabling crops to grow, and so suffering sets in. We see some examples of it here. Farmers have no water. Uh, look at verse 4. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. And again, as in verse 3, uh, an indication of uh, distress, of, of fear. Uh, even in verse 5, wildlife is suffering. Verse 5, even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. There's nothing for them to eat. And then again in verse 6, the wildlife, the wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. And so the picture here is that of extremity. The cisterns are empty. The servants can go for water, but there's nothing there. Farmers are seeing their crops dry up. Even animals, even the wildlife is suffering because there's just no water. And they are in a bad way. Now, you think about that, even as we experience the drought, uh, a sense of helplessness. As the lake gets lower, um, the need for water is very real. It is conceivable that a day could come if a drought persisted, that even with the systems that we have, that you one day turn on the spigot and nothing is there. What do you do? If you think about that, that gets to be a pretty scary thing. Well, that's exactly where they were. Things were drying up, not only the people, but animals were suffering badly. Now, in verse 7, Jeremiah, is he, he understands the situation. He recognizes uh, that... They deserve God's judgment. And so in verse 7, you have a confession. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many, 
we have sinned against you. Now, notice that he acknowledges the abundance of their sin. And notice the basis on which he appeals to, to God to act. Act for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. He recognizes they have no claim. Of course, they never had any claim, but particularly in their rebellious state, they have no claim. And so Jeremiah simply says, act, O God, for your name's sake. We can't plead our faithfulness. We can't point to anything in us, but simply act for the sake of your name, O God. And then he appeals to God on the basis of that confession. Look at verses 8 through 9. He, he appeals to God as though God is an indifferent stranger. As if God is indifferent to them. Look at verse 8. Oh, you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land? Like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night. Why should you be like someone indifferent? Here we are in this area, which is really kind of the center of the worst of the drought. The North Georgia, Western North, or North Georgia, Western North Carolina um, Eastern Tennessee area. You know, if you saw the maps, that was that circle. That area was the one that was brown. You know, the one right in the middle of the worst of it. But think of somebody driving through. They might be driving up I-85, stop at a hotel. Uh, they know they're in an area where there's a drought. They turn on the shower and there's water. They turn on the sink and there's water. They go get a drink and there's water. And then they drive on through. They they're aware of the drought, but it doesn't affect them. They don't really. Uh, anticipate suffering from it because they live somewhere else where there's plenty of water. Well, Jeremiah appeals to the Lord as though God is indifferent, as though he's just a stranger passing through. He also appeals to him, curiously, as though God's confused. Look at verse 9. Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. You know, when we call out to God when we're suffering, we might tend to perceive God in those ways, as if he is indifferent, if he's not concerned. Or maybe he's confused. Maybe he just doesn't understand the situation. Or, as Jeremiah points out, maybe he's an ineffective warrior, like a mighty warrior who cannot save. Maybe God is concerned for me, but he simply can't do anything about my situation. Those are the kinds of images that Jeremiah appeals. And, in fact, those are often the kind of thoughts people have about God. When they're suffering, and God doesn't seem to do anything about it, that he doesn't care, or that he doesn't understand, or that he doesn't have the ability to address our situation, all of which, of course, is untrue, Jeremiah acknowledges that. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us. We are called by your name. Do not leave us. But then the Lord gives his answer, and it's not particularly encouraging. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they've loved to wander thus, they have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The answer is, you've rebelled. You've persisted in sinning against me. And now I'm going to remember your sins against you. And he says something particularly to Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, this is verse 11, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Ouch. 
Lord, you're our hope. You're our last hope. We turn to you. We don't deserve anything. We turn to you for help. And the Lord says, you're sinners. You've rebelled against me long enough. And Jeremiah, stop praying for these people. You're Jeremiah. What do you do? What else can you do? You keep praying. <laughs> you keep on pleading. And that brings up the second problem. First was the drought, which was evidence of God's judgment, the withholding of rain, uh, something no human being can do anything about. Only God can send rain. And God's in, in, in response to Jeremiah's please, says, look, you, know, you, you all are sinners. I've had it. It's enough. And stop praying. So Jeremiah points out the second problem that they have, not just drought, but deceivers. And he does this in a, in a, in a little bit, I think, to explain or try to continue to, to argue with God, to, to plead his case before God. Yes, the people are sinful. Yes, they're rebellious. But there's another problem that can help to explain that, and it has to do with these deceivers, with these false prophets. Look at verse 13. And there is a problem here with these prophets. I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword. You shall not have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Mark of the false prophet, tell them what they want to hear. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. Jeremiah says, well, look, you know, the people are acting this way, but their prophets keep saying to them, there's not, you know, you're, you're doing fine. You're not going to see the sword. There's not going to be any judgment. You won't have famine, but you're going to have peace. Promise you, guarantee it, assured peace. And Jeremiah knows what the Lord's going to say. I mean, he knows they're not right. They, they were contradicting Jeremiah's own message. The Lord says, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. When I was in college, the Lord called me to the ministry, August of 1983. And curiously, I was reading the book of Acts, and curiously that call did not come in the form of a command to be obeyed, but a question to be answered. The question was, does God want me to preach the gospel? And that was a question I knew I had to answer. And in some sense, I already knew the answer to, but it took a while to acknowledge that, to admit that, and to be certain of that. Uh, I can remember being terrified by this passage, and others like it in the scriptures, others like it in Jeremiah, but this in particular. I did not send them, nor did I command them, or speak to them. I was terrified of entering the ministry uncalled, unsent. And that's a healthy fear. Because no one goes into the ministry of the Lord by his own choosing. Only by God's choosing. And so I had to be certain that that was God's choosing. Because I was terrified of this passage. I did not want to be a false prophet uh, certainly just speaking the deceit of my own mind. So I would speak to my RUF campus minister, Jimmy Turner, there, and you know, I'd go into all these fears. And I'm not so sure he didn't roll his eyes a time or two. <laughs> but I think he appreciated the concern. Uh, he absolutely agreed with me uh, with that. Uh, but these, God had not sent 
And they were prophesying lies to the people, the deceit of their own minds, their own ideas, not the word of the Lord. And this is what God says about them. Uh, They deny any judgment. They're not sent by God. And those, uh, they and those who listen to them will die. Look at verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy, that is, those who listen to them, shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them. A terrible dishonor. Them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. See, the very thing they said would not happen, sword and famine, God was going to bring upon them and their families and those who listened to them, those to whom they spoke. So there's this terrible problem of false prophets. One, of course, it's not unique to Jeremiah's time. Well, what's Jeremiah to do? Well, he again appeals to God. Look at verse um, 17. The Lord continues, you shall say to them this word, and you want a word from the Lord, let my eyes run down with tears night and day. Let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out in the field, behold, those pierced by the sword. If I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine, for both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Again, this, this vision of the devastation of God's judgment, sword and famine. Well, Jeremiah appeals to God, verse 19. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? Well, the answer is clear. God made it clear. They persisted to rebel against the Lord. Even Jeremiah gets a little of this mindset, raging against the Lord for for the folly of of their own sin. We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror. And so he acknowledges their sin. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. But then he goes back and he appeals. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Again, appealing to God's honor. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. You see... Jeremiah continues to appeal to God. He has nothing else. There's nowhere else to go. Even when God says no, he persists. And finally, verse 22, Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. You see, Jeremiah persists. God says, stop praying. Well, he continues to pray, continues to appeal to the Lord for his People, Because Jeremiah is confident of something that Calvin would express in this way, of course, many, many years later. The grace of God cannot be wholly obliterated. At least not this side of hell. There it will be. This side of hell, Jeremiah persists because he believes that same thing as Calvin put it, that the grace of God cannot be wholly, that is completely obliterated. Even when God says no. Even when God says, don't pray, Jeremiah continues to appeal to the Lord, recognizing that it's only the Lord who can help. And he prayed for the sake of God's name. Again, 
uh, he says, for your name's sake. He has no other basis on which to pray. They certainly have not been faithful to the Lord. They certainly have not obeyed the Lord. But he simply prays for the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's covenant, that he would be faithful. You see, it's always appropriate to pray to God for help, even when the troubles that we endure are of our own making. And you see, indeed, ultimately, our greatest troubles are of our own making because we have sinned against the Lord, because we have violated his commandment. And it is true that when our sinful folly brings us to ruin, we're prone to blame God. We're prone to rage against the Lord, as the proverb has it. Wrong reaction. We need instead to acknowledge our sin to acknowledge what we've done to create our own troubles, to humble ourselves before the Lord, to acknowledge our sin, to throw ourselves on the grace and the mercy and the help of God, even when we've brought it on ourselves. And though it's our fault, God takes the cost upon himself in having sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins to take upon himself the wrath of God that we brought on ourselves, that wrath of God would fall on Jesus instead. You see, when we bring trouble upon ourselves, human reaction is to blame God. Why did you let this happen, God? There's something better that we should say, something else that we need to say. We need to say with Jeremiah, as he says here, Are you not he, O Lord, our God. We set our hope on you. You see, God alone can end a drought. God alone can fix our lives. God alone can save our souls. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this world in which we live is a result of our fall of Adam and Eve and our rebellion against you after them ever since. Father, we recognize that we deserve everything that we suffer in this world and more. Even in the worst of our suffering, Lord, we experience your mercy, your restraint. And Father, we tremble to think that those in hell will one day receive in themselves the due justice for their sin. But Father, we would not be in hell. We want to be with you. And so we cast ourselves on your mercy. We thank you for Christ. Thank you. Lord, that on the cross he suffered in himself everything that we deserved, everything that we brought upon ourselves, so that you might forgive us, so that you might receive us to yourself. We thank you for him. Father, we pray that we would not grumble or complain against you, but throw ourselves on your mercy in Christ, because you alone are he, O God. You alone are our hope. You alone are the one who can do all these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.